Commitment matters. And today, specifically, we're going to talk about commitment in our relationships. Now, if you're here today and you're thinking, well, I don't have a significant relationship, don't worry, we're going to cover all relationships. We're going to talk about relationships in the family, uh, friendship relationships, of course, uh, the marriage relationship. We're going to look at those today. So you're going to get something out of today's message, guaranteed. And something that runs through all relationships that are significant, any relationship that is important, any relationship that's deep and that matters, it requires commitment. All right. The definition of commitment is the act of binding yourself to a course of action, no matter the cost or outcome. Binding yourself to a course of action, no matter the cost or outcome. Commitment says I'm doing this no matter what. I want to uh, read a little bit from an article here uh, from Focus on the Family. I'm going to just read it in three parts. I want to get part one right off the bat. Now, this article is concerning the marriage relationship, but the entire message we're going to talk about all relationships. If you really love someone, you shouldn't have to work at it. That's what high school musical star Vanessa Hudgens told Cosmo Girl for its August 2008 issue. The young celebrity was speaking out loud what millions of people privately think. Loving feelings should come naturally in a relationship, so if you have to work at it, something's wrong. But the truth is exactly the opposite. If you truly love someone, you will work hard for the relationship. Rock or sand, Jesus spoke of a house that was built on sand and shaken by storms, while another house was built on rock and remained unmoved. One of my greatest surprises as a relationship analyst is just how many of us build our marriages on the sand of feelings instead of the rock of commitment. But I've been encouraged to see that truly committed couples are able, with God's help, to thrive even through the inevitable storms. Over a five-year period, a close friend sent me emails sharing about her struggles with her marriage. She went from daily messages that read, I can't take it anymore. I think that's how she would have sounded, but it was email, so. I can't take it anymore. Two emails saying, he's such a gift to me. Wow. What accounted for the change? Her determination. As she now says, a successful marriage has little to do with circumstances and a lot to do with determination. Taking the word divorce out of your vocabulary and replacing it with commitment. You see, commitment matters. Commitment in every kind of relationship will hold the relationship together, but it will also make it amazing. Now, let's begin, when we talk about relationships, let's talk about commitment to family, because all of us have family. So pretty much all of us. Now, someone may have come from another country, and they're the only one here, maybe, and their family's not with them. Let the church be your family. But commitment to family definitely matters, and Scripture has a lot to say about it. Proverbs 17, 17 says this, A friend is always loyal, and a brother is born to help in time of need. What it's saying is when you are part of a family, there is an underlying commitment that says, I'll stand up for my brother, I'll stand up for my sister. Even if you have differences, 
even if sometimes you don't like each other, you will stand up for each other in crisis. Guaranteed. It's like there's this inner commitment to it. And if your brother-sister relationship is really broken, you've got to fix it. Because God wants it to be that way. Listen to Psalm 133, verse 1 and 3. It says, look how good and pleasing it is when families live together as one. Or another version says, are in unity. It's like expensive oil poured over the head, running down the beard, Aaron's beard, which extended over the collar of his robes. It's like the dew on Mount Hermon, streaming down onto the mountains of Zion, because it is there that the Lord commands the blessing, everlasting life. When families work together, when they commit to look out for one another, when they commit to hold each other up, there's a unity, and from that unity flows a blessing. Isn't that amazing? A blessing, favor from the Lord, and blessing when you commit to looking out for your family. Never tear down your family. Never, never, never. We're not even talking about the church in this message today. But your family, God gave them to you. You don't get to choose your family as the saying goes. Maybe you got some wingnuts in your family. That's okay. Maybe you're the wingnut. Like just, it's okay. Commit to caring about and looking out for family. 1 Timothy 5 verse 8 has this to say about looking out for family. He says, but those who won't care for their relatives, especially those in their own household, have denied the true faith. Such people are worse than unbelievers. So here he is making a very strong statement that says, hey, you need to care about your family. We can't put big smiles on and ignore the people that God has put around us in our immediate family. And this portion of scripture he was actually talking about widows and people who couldn't support themselves. So he wasn't talking about somebody who's freeloading or, you know, anything like that. It was, it was serious family has a need and they don't have the ability to meet that need. Hey, can we help our family? Okay. Family commitment is important. Here's some family commitment that maybe you kind of don't always have at the forefront of your mind, but in Scripture, it talks about parents having commitment to their children. Okay, and I'm going to give you a couple of verses here. Proverbs 22.6, direct your children on the right path, and when they are older, they will not leave it. You see, as parents, when you have a baby, you commit to looking after it. If you don't, Someone's going to call social services or you won't have that child. You make a commitment to look after that child. One of those commitments in the Bible is that you commit to showing them the right path, directing them on that path. And I'm going to say a little bit more about that in a minute. Ephesians 6 and verse 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. So both of these are talking to uh, fathers and parents, this one specifically to fathers. And I believe it's because fathers, your kids look up to you and you have the ability to build them or crush their spirit. And sometimes as fathers, you think a joke is funny, but you can actually crush their spirit. 
So fathers, don't get them angry. Help them move on. Every dad knows you can get your kids angry with one word probably, right? But anyhow, we're committing that we want to raise them well and not just get them all upset. All right, so let's commit to doing that. Uh, here's another verse about the commitment of parents to children. Deuteronomy 6, verse 6 to 7. And it says, And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I am giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home, when you're on the road, when you're going to bed, and when you are getting up. All right. We understand that in this portion of Scripture, he's telling them, commit to following God's ways, but he doesn't even take a breath, and he says, commit to following God's ways, and tell them to your children again, and again, and again, and again. Parents, you have a commitment to raise your children up in the faith that you have, according to Scripture. It is a commitment that each of us makes. And I want to say something today, church. As a parent, that commitment to your children to put them on the right path, to raise them up, doesn't end at 12 years old. Like, oh, here he goes. It doesn't end at 13 years old. It doesn't end at 16 years old. You know, I am actually surprised that sometimes parents will say, well... When our, you know, when they became a teenager, we're just going to let them make their own choices on their spiritual journey. For real? Do you make them, you know, have their own choices about whether or not they want to go to school? Do they have their own choices about whether or not they're going to sleep with their boyfriend or girlfriend? That's their physical journey, their learning journey. Do you let them decide if they want to go to practice for sports or not? That's their sports journey. So those journeys you're telling me are important enough that you're going to stay involved, but their spiritual journey isn't? Let's just keep going because I'm going to get in trouble here. Can I tell you, parents? Scripture tells you, tell them again and again and again, and one of the worries, ways you help them to understand that the spiritual journey is important is you bring them to church. I know maybe you're like, wow, but you don't know my kids. They're really annoying. <laughs> Just bring them. We'll send them to kids' church, okay? <laughs> if they're teenagers, maybe they're like, that pastor is so annoying. Bring them anyways. Tell them you've seen worse pastors. I don't know. You've got to learn. You've got to grow. You've got to show your children that commitment to church is important. In your spiritual journey, committing to a church that's not perfect is important. Committing to get with other people and grow in your faith is important. I'm going to read you this verse because this is an amazing verse about the commitment of parents to children. It's Genesis 18, verse 19. And I'm reading in maybe a different version than you've heard, but listen carefully to this. This is really, this will blow you away. It says, Abraham will certainly become a great populous nation, and all the earth's nations will be blessed because of him. I have formed a relationship with him so that he will instruct his children and his household after him. And they will keep the Lord's path, being moral and just, so that the Lord can do for Abraham everything he said he would. 
This scripture blows me away. God has hinged the very promise of the Messiah coming who will change the world, the blessing that would come through Abraham's generation, and he hinges it right here. I picked this guy is what he's saying. I'm even called him my friend. I've picked him because I know that he will teach his children to follow my path. And he will teach them in a way that they will teach their children for the next generation. Who will teach their children for the next generation. And because of that, I know this will come to pass. Do you realize, mom and dad, what you put into your kids can change generations. You better thank those kids ministry teachers when they come out because they are amazing. We got some of them in here today as well. What they're putting in can change generations. They have no idea. One word, one prayer, and that young person realizes this matters. I'm going to tell my kids, and they're going to tell their kids. So can I say it like this? Don't just force your kids to come to church. Explain to them why and show them how that they can also teach others which one day will be their kids. Because simply forcing somebody without a why will just make them bitter. So, tell them why. You know, I am excited even as I share that verse because I just think about what is the potential that the young people in this church could change the world because a mom or a dad sat down and said, hey, this matters, this matters. The potential is unbelievable. A couple weekends ago, there were, you know, we were in here for the two services, there were approximately 69 people on the kids' ministry side, kids and helpers. What is the potential? I, I just, it, it excites me. Get excited, church. If you're too much online and gloom and doom, quit it. That little one you're holding could change the world. Are you committed to helping them with the most important journey of their lives, their spiritual journey? All right, commitment of children to parents. For the young people that are here, there is also scripture that says you need to make a commitment to your parents. Proverbs 1 verse 8. My child, listen when your father corrects you. Don't neglect your mother's instructions. So this is a commitment that says, hey, they care enough about me that I'm going to listen and follow what they say. And Ephesians 6 verse 1 to 2 kind of says the same thing. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. It says if you honor your parents, you'll live long. It is the commandment that has a promise, the first one with promise. So, all of us here have parents. Now, some of your parents may have passed on, but if your parents are still living, you can honor them whatever your age is. You honor them by your words and your actions and how you treat them. Okay, so for the teenagers, it's not just you, us as well who have parents. We honor them by our actions, our words, and how we treat them. And when you truly honor somebody, you show them respect. You don't cuss them out. You don't talk about their mistakes and flaws. You don't put them down. You don't make fun of them around other people, right? So we can all practice that. So young people... People with parents that are still living, let's honor them. 
And you can ask some of the older ones here whose parents have gone on. They wish they were still around that they could go have coffee with them and honor them. So do it now while you can. All right, commitment to our spouse. Here is the relationship part of today's message. You make a commitment when you join in a marriage relationship. Matthew 19, verse 5. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. All right, so what God has joined together becomes one. And he's talking, of course, about the marriage relationship. A man and a woman, according to scripture, come together in marriage and they become one. And they make a commitment that they will stay together. You see, when you get married, there's vows that are set. And it's not a contract, but a covenant. And you commit to saying, hey, we're going to be together for better or for worse, in sickness and health, richer or poorer, till death do us part. You use your words and you're committing to that relationship. I've never done a marriage yet. Now, we'll let people do some of their own vows after the original vows, but even in their own vows, nobody has ever said, I'll love you till you get me mad. Never at a wedding. I'll love you till you don't look good enough. Nobody has ever said that. Ever. Right? I'll love you till someone better comes along. What? If someone said that, you end the wedding right there. So we do make that commitment, and it's an important commitment. And when we do that before God, it's important that we keep it. Ephesians 5.24, listen to this. As the church submits to Christ, wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And we'll just stop right there. No, we have to get the next verse. The next verse is actually pretty important to the whole thing. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her. So, husbands here today, if you really want your wife to let you lead and make all those final decisions, they need to know you love them so much you would die for them. Because if a man doesn't really care about his wife, why would she trust him and allow him to make decisions for the family? But when she knows, this guy would give everything for me, oh my goodness, she will gladly say, yeah, go ahead. I want to read the second part of the article here, and then we're going to continue on. What is commitment, the article says. Commitment is a decision to have the abundant marriage God desires, regardless of circumstances, or whether you think your spouse is doing his or her part. This includes realizing that marriage is an unbreakable unbreakable covenant before God, choosing to do it until you feel it, not the other way around, focusing on the good in your spouse and the sin in yourself instead of the other way around. You want a bad marriage? Focus on every mistake your spouse has ever made. You will have a horrible marriage. But he's saying here, why not focus on the good and look at what you need to work on in you, and it will be a better marriage. Also, engaging in Christian community, prayer, and discipleship, especially when you don't want to. Did a pastor write this? Anyhow, keep going. Uh, Also, relying on God to help you act selflessly toward your spouse. Get God involved because making a commitment no matter what is not easy. So allow God to be involved. Take time in prayer. Get others to help you out if you're struggling. 
If you're having a huge struggle in your relationship, don't just pretend. Talk to someone who can help. There's counselors out there. There's pastors that can pray. Just keep that commitment. Work on it and watch what God brings from it. And I think I'll just finish up the article right now. It says, is commitment possible? The often cited statistic that 50% of marriages end in divorce, even among churchgoers, can make commitment seem fruitless. But the statistic is misleading. Dozens of studies distinguish between couples who claim a nominal faith and those who prioritize church attendance. Couples who have a strong commitment to faith and attending church regularly are far more likely to have lifelong relationship. Who knew? Commitment to church is important, even in your relationship. One study in particular showed that those who go to church and pray together have a much lower divorce rate. It says, while that rate is still unfortunately high, when you add prayer into the mix, thoughts of divorce plummet. A 1998 survey by Georgia Family Council found that among couples who prayed together weekly, only 7% had seriously considered divorce compared to 65% of those who never prayed together. I think I found something that will help you. Pray with your spouse. If you're not praying with your spouse about anything, start. You're like, but that's awkward. How long have you been married? How can that be awkward? (laughs) My wife and I have been married, it will be 26 years this uh, summer. My wife right here. And uh, she's just such a blessing. And, you know, we made that commitment to, to... just move forward. And yet, did you know that that for a lot of years, she didn't want to pray with me. She felt like it was awkward and I'd be judging her prayer. And we had to work through that. And, you know, just do it, even if it's awkward. You know, still today, after almost 26 years, you know, we'll get to go snuggle. She will bang my head and then we'll do that. I'll bang her head. I'm like, haven't we figured that out? This is 26 years. How come? Anyhow, Awkward is okay, just do it. So let me give you a tip if you want to pray with your spouse, you've never done it, get together and say, hey, we're going to pray together and let's just pray about one thing. I'll start and then you start. It doesn't matter how long, doesn't matter what you say, just do it. Okay, so maybe it's new to you and you'll be like, uh, you want to pray for, what should we pray for as a spouse? Hmm. You want to pray for your pet poodle. Okay, I'm going to keep this, like, very safe. <laughs> you want to pray for your pet poodle, because your pet poodle is having issues. I better stop. This is not safe anymore. <laughs> People who have poodles will be like, don't. Okay. And he's feeling sick. That's what we'll go with. Pet poodle's feeling sick. So take a turn to pray. Maybe you're not really used to praying, and your only prayer is, you know, Lord, we really love this poodle. Please help it to be better. And then the husband can take his turn. Lord, this is a great poodle. Can someone come and take it? No, don't, don't pray that. Don't pray that. Don't pray that. Okay. Keep it, you know, in unity. Anyhow, I got to keep going. I'm going to get in trouble here. Commitment to friends. So for some of you here today, you're like, well, I don't have a partner or whatever. But you do probably have friends or maybe you don't have friends and you want friends. You need to hear this part. Commitment creates great friendships. Proverbs 18.24, a man who has friends must himself be friendly, and there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. 
Friendships are important. And yes, friends can even be closer than family members. Those friendships are built when you and I are willing to commit to them. We're willing to give, we're willing to hear them, we're willing to spend time with them, and God says yes to good, close friendships. As a matter of fact, there's a story in 1 Samuel about a man named David and a best friend. And David, if you remember, is the young man who used to look after sheep, and he went out and he killed a giant. He used a sling and a stone, and then he chopped the giant's head off. And then they quickly took him over to King Saul, and they said, we got to find out who this guy is. Because we don't even know, and here he just killed our worst enemy. And they brought him in, and Saul asked him questions, and David answered, and... This is what we read in Samuel, 1 Samuel 18, verse 1. As soon as David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul, and Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. So he was no longer going to look after sheep. He was kept in the king's house as a soldier, a warrior, because of what had just happened. And verse 3, then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David, his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. You see, Jonathan committed to being a best friend to David no matter what. And the gift that Jonathan gave him was a statement in the covenant of we're going to be best friends no matter what. It was a statement that went beyond because, you see, Jonathan would have been next in line to be king and his uh, attire, his armor, was part of that. And Jonathan is now saying, David, I'm going to be your best friend even if it meant you were taking my place. Here's my stuff that's part of my position. You're my friend even if you end up taking my place. I don't care. Now, we realize that ended up happening. What a friendship. Do you care enough about your best friend that even if it means you need to be a little lower so that they can step forward? See, that's what makes healthy friendships. That makes friendships that will not be broken. Now, when we talk about friendships and best friends, what about Jesus to his disciples? Because, you see, I believe Jesus is the best example of a friend. He says in John 15, verse 12, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Jesus called his followers friends. And then he made the statement, no greater love has a friend than this that he laid on his life. You see, there is a godly love in friendship. Okay? You know, when you get on these topics in our world and culture today, people quickly go off on a tangent to things that are maybe a little bit off, but love in friendships is correct. Okay? Two young men can have a godly love in their friendship. It's when you take it to the position of what's supposed to be in marriage, but it's unscriptural. Okay? So, 
You are not a, a different person because you have a deep friendship with somebody. You're somebody who knows how to make friends because you have a heart and you care deeply. So have a heart and care deeply and just keep friendships friendships and follow scripture for those other things of relationship and marriage. I'm just gonna tell you the truth because I wanna see God's people blessed and I believe there are friendships that last for life. I believe there are marriages where the friendship is deep but it's a marriage so there's more to it than just friendship. Okay? Have I said enough? Is everybody okay? You're still with me here? All right. Jesus is the greatest friend ever. Romans 5, verse 6. This is why I say he's the greatest friend ever, because when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. In other words, he is the kind of friend that while we didn't even care about him, we maybe even were going against him, he died for us. That is an unbelievable friend. In our context, you can think of it as someone who used to be your friend, but now you don't talk to them because you're mad at them, and they go die for you. I'm going to give you something that you need to remember. If you want healthy, good friendships, the number one thing you will need to practice is forgiveness. Church, if today you have people that you refuse to talk to, you are not practicing forgiveness. Now, if someone has hurt or harmed you, you don't have to be uh, close to them or have communication, but if you're angry and you are setting up a wall, you're not practicing forgiveness. Forgiveness is the key to long-term relationship, long-term friendships, forgiveness. If you hold it and you carry it, it only hurts you. And you will become an angry, bitter person. And church, if you're angry and bitter, it ruins every relationship you come into. Your work relationships, your friendships, let it go. Forgiveness is not you saying the other person was right. Forgiveness is saying, I am no longer going to be your judge. I'm not going to make you pay. I'm giving it to the Lord, and I forgive you. There's no longer anything between us. You let him have it. And when he takes it, you can walk lighter. Because I found something out. People who don't forgive and that are angry and bitter, they do not enjoy life. They look through the lenses of their anger and bitterness, and they don't enjoy any good relationships. And you know what? Sometimes the person who hurt them doesn't even know. You, by not forgiving, you don't hurt them, you hurt you. Jesus said he'd never leave us or forsake us. That he would always, even to the end of the world, be with us. He committed his love to us forever and he proved it by giving his life. If you're here today and you've never asked Christ to come into your life and to save you, you've never asked him to forgive you and said, yes, I'll follow we're going to make opportunity that for that today, just in case there's one. And Romans 10 verse 9 says that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so here at our church, we say a prayer that you can repeat just that allows you to speak with your mouth what you're feeling here. 
So we're going to take opportunity to do that, and I'm going to ask you guys to join with me for that one or two today that may say, yeah, that's me. So repeat this after me. Say, Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. I ask you now, forgive me of all my sin. Make me new. Use my life. In Jesus' name, amen.